Hi, everybody. I'm Gwen Eiffel with PBS, Rick Burke, who you know with the New York Times, and we're going to talk about money today. Um, I think everybody knows everybody on the panel, and if not, you can refer to your folders for a little bit of uh, we'll try to keep calling you by your name so that everybody can follow along, especially to anyone listening on audio later on, so we can um, have kind of a freewheeling, wide-ranging discussion about the $6 billion campaign. Um, and why it happened, how it happened, how it came to be, and what effect it had. And, and I want to start by uh, relaying a conversation I had with a voter yesterday in Dallas, Texas, who raised his hand and said, so after all this money was spent, can you tell me whether it made a difference in who won and who lost? And I realized I honestly didn't have an answer, but that you guys might. So I want to start by going down the line and asking your thought about that. When you look at the numbers, when you look at the outcomes, and you look at the money that you raised and the records that you broke, what difference did it make? Did, after all the worry about Citizens United and all the concerns about outside spending and individual spending, did it make a big difference? Nick Ryan, I'll start with you. Um, I, think it, I think it had a, a big effect in the Republican primary. I think that if you look at the work that uh, Restore Our Future did, I think that they were incredibly effective. Um, at, at assisting Governor Romney get through the primary. And I think that the super PAC that I ran for mm -hmm. Senator Santorum, I don't think he would have been able to have the, the success or the funds necessary to be competitive. I think as you went through the process um, and you head into a general election against an incumbent president that's, uh, that's well-liked and well-defined already, um, I, think it's, I think it's more challenging uh, to, to be effective in, in that big of a race. Smaller the race, um, I think it's, you're able to affect the outcome much more. I should also add, as we go down the line here and as we continue this conversation, Rick and I are going to encourage you to have conversations with each other about that. If you hear a, um, a description of events which you may disagree with or which you saw differently. Bill Why would you say that right before? I don't know. Brand? When I just it's came really to you, <laughs> I uncomfortable. <laughs> um, I think Nick's right. I think that uh, in the primary, super PACs made a huge difference. Um, I don't think that Mitt Romney would have been the nominee if it weren't for Restore Our Future. Uh, in the general election, I feel like the work that we did defining Mitt Romney's business experience was something that stayed with voters uh, all the way to election day. Um, and you know, some of the other projects we engaged in, like. Uh, on his, with Hispanic voters, um, I think that we were able to help undercut uh, what was already a growing problem for Mitt Romney. Uh, but if you look at the broad picture, the hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars, it's sort of like I understand that voters' uh, confusion about whether or not it made a big difference because you know you look at the final outcome and it's you know 50-50 country basically. Um, but that's like saying if you were in a war where two countries were firing missiles at each other, did the missiles make any difference? And if one of those countries isn't firing missiles, uh, you can see what that difference is a lot more than you can if both countries are firing the missiles. So I think that um, they did make a big difference. And in 2016, I think that uh, you will see a proliferation of outside groups uh, far beyond what you saw this time around. Well, I find myself in the uncomfortable position of agreeing with everything that Bill Burton said. Uh, Don't make uh, that a habit. All right. Try not to. Uh, but uh, to maybe add a little more detail to the picture with respect to uh, American Crossroads and Crossroads GPS, as we looked at the, uh, the election year, uh, from our perspective, the, the critical time period that was going to be the period between the end of the Republican primaries and the conventions, during which time we 
assumed uh, what ended up happening, which was that the Obama campaign would front load their spending, uh, would try to uh, make uh, Mitt Romney uh, an, an absolutely impossible alternative choice for voters and try to put it away as much as they possibly could uh, before uh, the, the conventions. And uh, we ended up uh, front-loading a lot of our spending as well during that, that particular time period, which we dubbed the interregnum between uh, April and, and August. Uh, in fact, we were not disappointed. Obama uh, outspent uh, Romney by about $100 million during that, that time period. And outside groups between us, uh, Restore Our Future, and uh, Americans for, for Prosperity ended up making up uh, that deficit very significantly. And as a result, two things happened from our perspective. One is that the ballot test from the end of the primaries up until uh, close to the conventions was essentially frozen in place. But more significantly from our purposes, when we looked at the election from the very beginning, our view was that the critical metric for us to drive was whether voters believe that President Obama's economic policies were helping the country, helping the economy, or hurting. And we, we found in all of our regression analyses that if we push people into the box of saying uh, that, that on balance his, his policies were hurting the economy, they could become uh, a, a voter who would switch from having voted for Obama in 2008 to voting for Romney in 12. And during the course of that period, those numbers did in fact change from a plurality saying he was making the economy better to on the, on the eve of the conventions saying that Obama's policies made the economy worse. Steve. So from our perspective, yeah, just, just from our perspective, at sort of critical points outside spending both in the primary season and at other points had a material effect on the progress of the race. Steve, quick follow-up. When you say you agree with Bill Burton, do you agree that had it not been for Restore Our Future that Romney wouldn't be the nominee? Well, I, uh, I didn't pay as close attention to the primaries. Uh, that was the, the job of the, the person on my right. right. Uh, but, but it did seem to me that most of the impactful advertising, particularly advertising uh, against uh, potential uh, competitors to Romney, was done by Restore Our Future. But I, so I, as you, would, I, you would agree they, they led to Romney's getting the nomination? I, I think they were a critical factor. I don't know and, if they were the ultimate Carl factor. Carl and Charlie, mm -hmm. would you say that's the case? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, one, one, no, you just need to turn it off. Oh. You only have two on at once. Go ahead, Carl. <laughs> um, absolutely. I, I mean, look, I think that, that super PACs um, impacted the debate both in the primary and the general election. Um, you know, w when you look at the fact that, that between April 1st and Labor Day, Obama outspent Romney by over $100 million, we would not be talking about this race the way we are in right now, it, it wouldn't have been, it wouldn't have existed like it did in September and October if that was allowed to happen unchecked. Um, and so, you know, from that standpoint, um, we did have an impact. Stephen's point that, you know, but in all of our polling and all of our focus groups, we determined that we had to get, we had to convince people or bring them over to the, make the decision that Obama's policies were hurting the country. And by the time we got to the convention for the first time, a plurality in our polling thought that. Um, and that's, that's what I think our impact was. So if were it not for your impact, who would be the nominee? Who would have been? I don't know that we know. Who do you think? Well, I mean, Rick Santorum was the last man standing, but had super PACs not been involved the whole way along, Gingrich might have won it out of the gate. I agree with basically everything that's been said. I think it was certainly a key factor in the primary. It's trite, but obviously the candidate's the most important factor and a super PAC can't make up for deficiencies of a campaign. But I think we were, you know, a key ally in that effort. 
two things since I did agree with most everything that was said was said two things I'd like to note one is Gwen started by talking about these massive amounts of money being spent I think one thing we learned in this cycle is the timing of money is just as important as the amounts of money and but, but give us a specific example where the timing made a difference well I was at the RGA meeting Republican Governors Association meeting two weeks ago and one of the governors said to me if you had just if you know if your super PAC had just spent a few million dollars in this over the summer doing voter registration and voter ID work uh, we would have you would have and not spent it at the end you know in the closing week on TV ads you would have won my state and I just sort of smiled and nodded what are you gonna say but it we didn't have the extra money over the summer uh, we money ended up getting backloaded uh, and spent at the very in the closing six weeks and in the closing month because that's when the money came in and that's when people were most enthused uh, you heard on the previous panel uh, the Obama strategist talking about front-loading their spending and that's a luxury that an incumbent campaign has and it's not something that at least as a super PAC that was candidate specific like restore our future was that we had the had the ability to do the other thing I hope we do talk about I know we've got plenty of time but I hope we talk about is there's a lot of journalists here who wrote a lot of articles about how awful super PACs were going to be and how they were going to distort uh, democracy and how this was going to lead to you know Watergate style corruption and I think one thing that's notable is over the last couple of years you really haven't seen I mean the usual self you know reform groups that make money off claiming there's problems you know put out press releases but you really haven't seen to, in my opinion any scandals involving super PACs if there were scandals in the you know campaign finance scandals it's probably maybe foreign money to the Obama campaign and that's the campaign itself not to super PACs we'll so, get back to this yeah. I promise you but Great. first Brian well, I, I would agree with all the points made, and I would say, you know, for us, we were a, a, what I call a boutique super PAC in that we focused um, on issues, and we were not only in the presidential race, but in senatorial races, and I think in some of the, obviously, primaries, super PACs played a big role um, there. I, I think the other thing that's interesting about super PACs to pick up where Charlie left off in terms of the reporting is a lot of folks focused on the negative, um, but in fact, I think at least on our side, our super PAC ran all positive advertising featuring uh, people who voted for President Obama in 2008 who had decided they didn't like his performance in office and switched to support Governor Romney. And I think some of the more memorable ads from Restore Our Future were the positive ads featuring um, like the family of the young girl that Governor Romney helped save uh, when he was at Bain Capital. So I feel like the media didn't focus enough on the fact that a lot of the super PACs were re really actually bringing positive information flow about candidates out there. And I think that's a, an important role for super PACs as well. But, but did it work? Getting well, back I think to the original question. I, I think it, it certainly it, it, you know, if you judge it by whether or not it worked in terms of Governor Romney lost, so you know, you could say no. But um, on the other hand, given all of the things that were said about him in terms of him causing cancer and all, and all these terrible things that um, you know Bill's super PAC was saying about the governor, I feel like the super PACs on our side did a good job of of humanizing. Governor Romney and, and really pointing out the, the positive aspects of his record. So it probably brought it more to parity and gave the, the campaign an opportunity to get their message out. Now, now you guys said that it was largely what you all did that helped deliver the nomination to Romney. 
did he not hold up his end of the bargain in the general? I mean, it, it's pretty, pretty well known that there's some distress among your ranks that um, some of his ad strategies were sort of inefficient, sort of um, focusing on things that were done in the 80s, like Wheel of Fortune, like bad targeting, like Wheel of Fortune Jeopardy instead of the better targeting. I mean, how much do you blame the ad people on the campaign and the strategists on the campaign for what happened in the end? I'll take a first crack at that and say I would not say that at all, that they didn't uphold their end of the bargain. I thought they ran a very good campaign, and it was a very, very close election. And, you know, maybe other people, I what you're alluding to, it's not you're pointing at us. I certainly haven't said that. Uh, to the extent that there's a lot of discussion about could there have been more positive framing of Governor Romney and more to define him? Uh, I don't know the answer, and I think the campaign has you know, good answers for why more resources weren't focused on that. But if you know, experts were to conclude that there should have been more positive definition, I would say that it's very difficult to do from the outside. Let me ask Carl or Stephen, is there anything you would have done differently if you were the Romney campaign and how they handled those closing months and their ad strategy? Or do you think it was picture perfect? I don't think we can possibly answer that question. I mean, we're each, we're each making decisions in our own bubble. Um, and they, they, were doing, you're, what, you're they were doing what they were doing what they thought but was best. But your frustration was no well, secret. I mean, I don't think any either. I don't think either of us expressed real frustration. I mean, the only the only thing that made it difficult for us to do our job was, you know, I think um, somebody pointed out on the Obama panel before that they placed back in in <clears throat> July for the whole whole fall. Um, Romney was placing week to week, and that that only made it. I mean, and that's obviously their choice, and nothing wrong with that, other than the fact that we couldn't. There were no signals there then for us, the super PACs, to know what was most important or where to go. We kind of had to make our own decisions. I, I, I think that just <clears throat> it also just reflects a, a, a larger issue, which became a strategic constraint on the campaign that had, had nothing to do with you know, sort of tactical decision making. But they were at a fi significant financial disadvantage vis-a-vis -vis the Obama campaign throughout. Not not only not only in the summer, but but through the fall. In the end, as it said, they were they were outspent by about 154 million dollars on TV. That's 30 million dollars in Ohio alone. That's the equivalent of six weeks of unanswered uh, television, which, you know, from our perspective, probably put constraints on their ability to triage messaging. Uh, and uh, but from our perspective, made in some ways made it very clear to us that our our role was to continue to keep uh, the pressure and the attention on Obama's policies and the impact of those policies as a, as a means of, of at least keeping voters locked in place for as long as possible. Did you feel I, at any point that you were um, hamstrung? by a, a strategy, a campaign strategy that was not in keeping with what you saw as a useful political strategy? No, I mean, I, I, we, we knew what we needed to do. I mean, it, it, <clears throat> there's a, in fact, it was interesting. I was listening to Matt Rhodes uh, last night talk about the, uh, the, uh, the policy that the, the, sort of the way that they viewed the, the campaign. It was the first time I'd, I'd ever heard him articulate that because obviously we didn't talk during the campaign, but it was precisely the same frame uh, of reference that we use. So, you know, from the vantage point of continuing to focus on the economy and jobs, uh, it was entirely in keeping with the direction that we, we felt we needed to head. I, I, the reason I ask you that question, not picking on you, is because I'm coming back to Mr. Burton. Dave, David Axarod said earlier today that he was not crazy about that. She's got my, he, Mitt Romney gave my wife cancer ad. 
that was your ad. Is that something that where you were out step with the campaign? Well, I think that if he's saying that he wouldn't have run the ad, that I think you could rightfully say that they wouldn't have run the ad that uh, that we put together. But I think there's a bunch of different pieces of this. But just first, I think that, that you guys are being uh, much kinder to the Romney campaign than maybe um, I would be if I were in your shoes, because given the given the fact that there was message confusion, no clear direction from Boston, I think for reporters, for voters, for anybody, on where they were taking the, the message of the campaign, I think it must have been really difficult for you guys to figure out where exactly to go. And I think Crossroads and, um, and Restore focused a lot on jobs and debt, but if you look at what AFP was doing with Solyndra and all these other attacks, and you've got the Romney campaign doing welfare reform and the war on religion, at any given moment, if you're a voter, you, I think that you probably don't have a very clear sense. So if you're a super PAC, supporting the campaign, you probably also don't have a very clear sense of what can be most helpful. I think your point on the spending is a much bigger, is a, is a much bigger deficit than I think um, people might initially realize. To not know where the campaign thinks are the most important targets makes it impossible for a super PAC to target uh, your own funds. And you had so much money, but not knowing exactly where the campaign was going to put it puts you at an even bigger disadvantage as a super PAC because you're spending so much more money, especially as you get closer to the election. And not being able to plan that out in advance uh, is very difficult. Bill, and then the last, just the last thing that I would say on this is that I don't think enough attention has been given to the fact that Mitt Romney, who is a spectacularly wealthy man, at a point where he was being um, attacked relentlessly, didn't put any of his own money into the campaign. And I don't know at what point he decided that he wasn't going to spend a dime to help his own effort, no matter how bad things got, particularly in May and June when we were doing the Bain attacks and the campaign was doing their series of attacks. You know, the fact that nobody was out there responding to that, and they could have, I think is, is probably, you know, a, a mistake that I led to the loss. I, I don't, I don't want to get away from the cancer ad. Okay. So on, on Do that, you regret doing that? No, I don't. Because if you look at what happened with that spot, for starters, we didn't say that Mitt Romney caused some women to get cancer. And I think you have to presuppose <clears throat> that voters are idiots to think that they would take that from that ad. I don't think anybody who watched it thought that. I think that what, what people saw was that there were real-life consequences to what happens when somebody comes to town, shuts down a factory, people lose their jobs and promise health care benefits. And in Joe Soptic's case, and I talked to him about this, he doesn't blame Mitt Romney for his wife getting cancer. What he blamed him for was the fact that at a point of terror in any person's life when a family member gets diagnosed with a terminal illness, he didn't have health insurance that was promised him. And that's, you know, regardless of any other facts that came out, that was true. And if you look at what happened politically during that entire period, there was probably a week where we were just getting pounded by a lot of the folks in this room, by folks all over Washington. But the ultimate res result of that was we spent a week talking about Mitt Romney's business experience, after which there's probably not a lot of people who walked away from it thinking, oh, that was a positive thing that Mitt Romney had that business experience. If I, and two, so hold on, and two, none of that accrued to the president. Even though the campaign had to answer questions about it, the president at one point answered a question about it, it wasn't like voters thought, oh, the president is getting too nasty and negative here. It was something that, you know, a message we were carrying and that, uh, that we took the heat on. Charlie? Just two quick points. Washington Post called that the most dishonest campaign ad of the year. And I, th I would have been mortified if, you know, the can if, you know, if we were at the RNC in 2004 and President Bush had to be up on a podium answering for ads 
and that's what happened in this case. You had not only the campaign, but you actually had the president himself repudiating the ad. And that does not mean, I suppose, that it wasn't effective. So his argument on effectiveness could be correct. But at a minimum, it shows the problem with, you know, it shows that there's a real division between super PACs because you can't coordinate with a campaign, that it clearly was not part of the campaign, the Obama campaign strategy when they're immediately repudiating it. Let me ask you, Bill, as you just to be clear, as you go on in your political career, would you again uh, recommend and endorse, condone an ad like that? You know, <clears throat> do you have, did you learn anything? Do you have any regrets, or do you feel totally comfortable with that decision? I feel like I know where you stand on the issue. <laughs> um, you know, look, I think that anybody can be uh, a genius in retrospect. I think that what we did had a clear impact on the race. So no, and lessons, fact, no lessons learned. I think you learn a lesson in everything you do. And things what's that the are lesson? Wildly the, things that but are wildly you would successful do it, and you things would do that it again. You would do it again? I, you know, I think it's impossible to take some hypothetical, you know. It's not hypothetical. What, I would actually, if you say, would you, I think sort of by definition it's hypothetical. So I think, you know, what, what we, I, I, I just think that, you know, every, every situation is different. Every campaign is different. I don't think Democrats will be so lucky as to run against Mitt Romney again. So, you know, I think that we'll just have to see. Let me ask everybody else to respond to something else Bill talked about, which is how the Bain attacks went unanswered for whatever reason in the primaries. Nick? Well, actually, in the in the primaries, I think that uh, both Senator Santorum and I think Dr. Paul both uh, both attacked those attacks, said they were wrong, um, said it's not the direction that that our party should should be going, um, and then eventually you end up, you know, with with Speaker Gingrich in a situation too, where where he's conflicted and having to, you know, almost walk back the attacks that his own super PAC are, is is making as well. I think the the attacks, while, while they were very similar, um, uh, the audience that they were done uh, to, uh, to to target in the general, you know, it's a different audience, and you know, attacking on something like Bain in a Republican primary didn't work, and and. Uh, and I'm glad it didn't work. I think the, the you think challenge, it caused long-standing harm to your nominee. Um, I wouldn't say that because I think it's 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 already there, and I think that uh, you know there were some Bain attacks in in 2008, and and so I think what's what's there is there. I think the the challenge is is I think there there possibly could have been a more compelling uh, uh, case portrayed or story given. Um, about the the success that that Governor Romney has had, and the people that he has helped, and and the the many jobs that have been created, and also explain some of those you know situations that ended badly, and explain explain why they did because that's life, and um, it's not as if it's not as if everything that that he's ever done has turned out a winner uh, for him personally or for the people that or the companies that he may have invested in. And I think some stories like that about, about not just opportunity gain, but also opportunity lost would have painted a little bit different picture of Bain and of Mitt Romney. The only thing I disagree with here is that the notion that it didn't work in the primaries. Because Newt Gingrich, when he did it, it was the, well, when his super PAC did it, it was the South Carolina primary, which Newt Gingrich won. And then because of pressure, he backed away from these attacks, which I'm, was, it was ham-handed in the way that they did it, no doubt. Um, but they backed away. Charlie and Carl stepped in and, you know, spent $16 million in Florida uh, to beat Gingrich, who's no longer doing it. And that's why the tide turned. It wasn't because the Bain attacks hurt Gingrich. Gingrich won when, he, when his super PAC was using them. He lost when they weren't. Carl, Charlie. 
I guess I would say that um, from the super from the super super PAC standpoint, um, it wasn't our job to defend Mitt Romney. Uh, if Mitt Romney felt he needed to to answer the Bain attacks, they were totally capable of doing it. They were they spent seventy five million dollars over the course of the summer, um, and during the time of the Bain attacks, they were still attacking President Obama. Um, from the super we we basically get penalized for trying to do positive ads. The FEC makes it very difficult for us to get footage, to do, any, to, to, to do it at all. Um, and so we do what we do best. And that was over the course of the summer, we also had to keep pressure on Obama. And if we, the, the collective we, ever stepped back from doing that, that would allow him an opening that we couldn't give him because we're still working to define him. Uh, and that, that was our mission this summer. We, and to Bill's earlier point about you know, the messaging kind of from the super PAC side being all over the place, we sat down at a table like this and talked every week about what the message was going to be between all of us. And, you know, if you look at the summer, American Crossroads was on in, in June um, or July. Uh, AFP went on or one of, the, one of the groups in early August. Restore came on in later August. I mean, it was a very coordinated effort to make sure that from basically Memorial Day on, someone was on the air attacking Barack Obama. Could, speaking of messaging, could you all give us a sense of the role of the big donors in decision-making and strategy and how, how much they were involved, how often you would hear from them? I, I think it's fair to say that, that, that we kept our donors informed about what we were doing, but there was real no input from the donors in terms of what the strategy. <clears throat> I can think of one example where a donor said he thought we should be talking about uh, the impact of the Obama uh, of raising taxes on small business on a specific type of small businesses that was just a personal pet cause of his of two over two years I think that's the only substantive uh, direction that a donor has so you never looked at your caller ID about. and saw Sheldon Adelson's name and said oh god he's on the phone again <laughs> If he did call, I'd be thrilled. So, I, yeah. I, thank God he's on the phone again. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's that. Is it, is it, Steve? Would you say the same thing? Yeah, or? Just, uh, just, just briefly. Uh, actually, one of the, the, the real challenges going into the cycle from the very beginning, which uh, ended up being an issue where we we needed to explain ourselves to donors, was that as, as we looked at all of our focus group and polling data going into the first of the year, we, we realized that the people we needed to reach, which were independent swing voters who largely supported Obama in 2008, still liked him, didn't believe he was successfully ideological, didn't believe he was partisan, didn't believe he was a bad guy, uh, were proud of the vote they cast in 2008, and uh, needed some convincing to, to believe otherwise. And the way that was reflected in our messaging, really all the way throughout the the year, including into the fall, was largely with, with fairly gentle, nuanced uh, advertising, not aimed at character, but aimed largely uh, at his record. The, you know, the, the kind of traditional negative campaign that uh, the Obama campaign did and, and Bill Burton did with, with, with great effect was not available uh, on our side. Uh, to be able to effectively accomplish uh, our mission. But and and uh, just, uh, yeah. just to complete the point yeah. in response to Gwen's question, a number of, of donors and, and, and people in the kind of the, the larger, you know, kind of uh, center-right community were, were eager for a more spirited and aggressive uh, effort. And, uh, you know, I think in the end they were convinced that the, the right approach to take was the 
approach we took, but it was it was not viscerally satisfying. But <laughs> to you guys a lot are, ex are experts on how to calibrate this, but we always heard that the people who are giving the money in many cases were much more pushing you much more aggressively to be tougher in in the advertising. And you're saying that's not true. They were hands off. No, no, no. I'm or, saying I'm saying you're that, saying that, you seem to be saying there was some pressure. I wouldn't say pressure, but but you know we we felt the need to explain why we were doing what we were doing because you know people who are activists, people who who are you know conservative on our side, uh, there was a real desire to see a, uh, something more visceral. But from our vantage point, looking at the data, you know, and and I think in the end, I, everybody understood that this was the right approach to take. Uh, was to to be more nuanced and more focused on an economic record rather than, you know, a personal attacks, which in our research would have uh, significantly backfired Brian or been ineffective. Yeah, I, I would just say two quick things. Uh, I'm, in terms of donor um, input, I didn't see it a lot on message, but I did see it on tactics. Like for instance, um, I know the donors that I worked with were very interested in seeing Restore Our Future do the Olympics ad that you did. Um, given the governor's successful leadership of the Olympics in Salt Lake. And so I know that that was something that <clears throat> Restore Our Future did and, and uh, worked. Um, on our end, another tactic that our super PAC used was something that was called the Mitzine, which was a 12-page, um, I actually have a copy of it right here. Just so happens. Um, insert that went into four and a half million newspapers uh, in five swing states. And when it was pitched to us, I thought it was a bit goofy. Um, but when I gave it to, to our principal donor, he said, well, you know, that's actually a, a great idea because the TV airwaves are so saturated, maybe getting into print and getting into people's hands, you know, letting them do the MIT crossword was a good idea. So I think that, that certainly some donors did get involved in decisions like that. Just one follow-up, if I may, on the big donors, and that is there these guys out there, um, Adelson, uh, the Cokes, you know, the Freeze, who were very larger-than-life figures, um, who you know knew would speak their mind, and there was a perception out there that these guys were sometimes maybe a little out there, and that they were representing the Republican Party in many ways. Did you all worry at all about the perception that these guys were had such an outsized influence in the course of the campaign? For the record, all of Restore Our Futures donors were fine people and not outsized at all. The, seriously, I think uh, when you have a super PAC that's, and this is true whether it's presidential or it's House or Senate, whatever it is, but when it's dominated by one person, so whether it was the, the super PAC supporting Rick Santorum that Foster Freeze gave you know, over half at one point was by far the largest donor for and uh, the super PAC supporting Speaker Gingrich, that uh, Mr. Adelson was the you know exponentially largest donor for. At that point, it can get associated with the donor specifically, and that becomes more of an issue. Or for even with Bill Burton's group, you know, you had at one point just a few Hollywood donors and some unions that were the only people that were really associate really giving money to the group. Uh, we were blessed to have had you know a long sort of lead up time of raising money and had a in the in terms of the super PAC world having 500 donors is a broad base I realize compared to campaigns that's not but we had a large enough group of donors that I don't think it was associated with any one person what in your view is the danger of having these guys as big names associated with these super PACs I think it can become a distraction if they are 
not on message with what they're saying. Having said that, I think most of the political strategists would still rather have the ads and the earned media distraction than not have. Yeah, I mean, the bottom line is that as much of a distraction as Freeze or whoever else wanted to be, the average voter had no idea who they were or what they were doing or their involvement. I mean, I was, it was at Axelrod or somebody made the point about you read earlier that, yes, I mean, everyone in this room and, and activists on each side may know, but, you know, use my, I'll use my wife as an example. She hates politics. She doesn't watch Fox News. She doesn't go to Politico. She doesn't read the New York Times. I, she would have no Wait, clue who those impossible. guys were. Wait, that's impossible. Well, I want to I ask, ask Bill to weigh in on that, too. Finish, Carl, but I'm, I'm also, when you talk about the fact that a few people may have had outsized influence, but only if insiders cared, I want to know if that happened on the Democratic side and also whether that means we're going to see a lot more of this. Start with that last piece. Well, I mean, look, given, given – Given the impact the super PACs had on this race right now and the way the law is written, you're absolutely going to see more of it. Uh, I mean, until the law gets changed, we're going, to keep, we're going to be here. Can I just make a very brief point on that, which is I think Carl makes it – he said the law. And just remember, this is not the Supreme Court decision. This is not about Citizens United. This is about the law, the law being McCain-Feingold that was passed and – pushes money away from political parties and pushes money away from candidates and forces the money into the outside groups and that who have a advantage of being able to take more money. So this is not a Citizens United phenomenon. Post uh, McCain-Feingold in 2004, you saw this with Progress for America and you saw it with Swift, Swift Boat veterans and then you saw it with the George Soros groups after that. And until the McCain-Feingold law is repealed and you're able to get, or at least modified, and you're able to get money into political parties and campaigns, you're going to have outside groups, groups having a uh, disproportionate influence. Were you surprised at all that Citizens United didn't have a bigger impact? Or did you know all along it wasn't really going to have, especially people on the left feared, the, the impact? I think we all thought it would have a symbolic impact. And it certainly got Republican donors to feel like it was okay to give again. Mm -hmm. And so, because there had been an, a concerted effort uh, after uh, the 2004 elections to go after Republican donors and chill them from wanting to participate. And then you had Senator McCain, who, you know, his candidacy was based around opposition to money in politics. So there wasn't a huge interest in getting involved in that. So it, I think Citizens United did have a symbolic impact, but it was not a legal impact. And, and Gwen, certainly, I mean, we all remember the President's State of the Union shortly after Citizens United was handed down, and he, well, with the Supreme Court sitting there in the well of the House, said we're going to have, you know, corporations buying elections, and we're going to have foreign corporations and all this foreign money. And, you know, that largely didn't happen. I mean, me, corporate donors were very, very small to Super PACs. Okay. Before we get okay. loose yeah. that and then yeah. come back. Well, I think the influence question is a little, um, it's a little misplaced in the sense that I don't think... The important issue isn't whether or not a donor has a big influence on the super PAC. It's whether they have influence on the candidate. Because if you want to be Joe Ricketts and spend $10 million to talk about uh, Jeremiah Wright, you can certainly do that. And that's not going to have the sort of influence that would be um, worrisome to a, uh, you know, an American citizen who's worried about like a rich person having influence on the process. I think when, um, since we're talking about Sheldon Adelson, you know, Sheldon Adelson got a lot of time with Mitt Romney. He went with him to Israel. They, you know, the first meeting that Paul Ryan did after, uh, after he was picked was with Sheldon Adelson in Vegas. And, you know, I think that 
that's the sort of thing that voters are concerned about. I mean, your guys' donors must be different than ours because when I picked the phone and talked to a donor, everybody had an idea about an ad. You know, it was, <laughs> and maybe it's just because we've we just got never some, encouraged that. <laughs> maybe it's maybe it's because we have such a big part of the creative community in, in Hollywood, New York. But no, no, we uh, we got plenty of plenty of good ones. But um, <laughs> tell us, I want to hear about one crazy one. Just no, one. There, uh, well, I mean, they weren't necessarily crazy. Like there were some. Oh, of course were, not. Just in case it gets back to the. And Gwen, I, I do <laughs> hope that, that here, uh, Rick will put it on the front page of the New York Times <laughs> if there's a real crazy one on Bill's side. Carl's wife won't read it. But <laughs> you know, some people would want to, who would really want us to focus on like wind energy or something like that. Everybody had a cause that they wanted to do. People want to do judges. Um, and we just didn't have money to do everything. Judges, so. that would have got a lot of votes. Let Some people are very motivated by that let, issue. Let me ask, uh, jump on something that Bill brought up, and that's the Ricketts ad campaign. I'll ask you, Brian, obviously. Um, you know, there was the big, big campaign that was laid out in, in, the, in the paper about um, the effort to, to link Obama with Reverend Wright. And, and can you tell us a little about that and why that, as far as our sources showed and our reporting showed that that was all set to go and um and because of the adverse publicity was pulled yeah, i mean i've you know been very clear and consistent from the very beginning that your reporting was just dead wrong um it was a proposal that was submitted to us based on an ad that was made for and rejected by john mccain i remember having lunch what a week before i got that proposal with carl and talking about the types of things that would work to convince independent and swing voters why President Obama should not be reelected. And Jeremiah Wright is nowhere on that list. So I think one of the things that you'll see with super PACs is they get all kinds of ideas, all kinds of proposals. Bill just talked about them. Um, but this was merely a proposal. It was not acted on. Joe Ricketts wasn't even at the meeting where it was presented. Um, I was. And I can tell you it was never going to be green-lighted. No ad was ever made, no dollar was ever invested. So I felt like it was, it was fairly overblown. In fact, Harvard must feel it was overblown because they didn't even put it in their timeline for this conference. Why, why wasn't it going to happen in your view? And what, um, you know, it looked like a pretty elaborate proposal. I mean, it didn't look like some fly-by-night on a napkin, you know. Well, I'm sure Fred Davis would take a compliment at that. Um, <laughs> elaborate is certainly one word for it. Um, I, there's a lot of reasons why I think the Ricketts wouldn't have done it. I can tell you one in my mind is I don't think it would have been effective. Um, I remember when he presented it to me, I said, well, where's the polling data showing this will work? Oh, we didn't pull this. We didn't do it. You know, he, he, he put together some scripts based on an ad that he had made for McCain. Um, so I think that's one reason it, w it wouldn't have been effective. I also think it, it, it would have been divisive. And um, it might have fired up folks for President Obama. So it might have had really an adverse impact. Not only might it not have helped Governor Romney, it really might have hurt Governor Romney. So those are really two reasons. But this is, I think, a good example of what you all are talking about. You have to deal with, some, or what I think you have to deal with, with some of the big donors wanting to be more visceral than you think is the wise course. Just remember, what this was not a donor. This right, was actually right. a consultant right. that was pitching a proposal. Right. Right, that's true. So it's none of you ever sense. considered this year, because after 2008, there was some concern that there were some bodies left on the field and that Jeremiah Wright was one of them and that there were a lot of folks who thought that th there could have been more made of that. And it was never considered this year to bring it back up again. Con considered? Considered. Sure. Sure. But, but the, none of the research, the polling, the focus, anything indicated that would work. 
I mean, as Stephen pointed out earlier, we learned pretty early on that the folks we were going after, those undecided voters, 90% of them voted for Obama the last time. They liked him. They just didn't like what he was doing to the country. So anything that was attacking his character or personality was already decided in their mind. They, they, he, Obama had them. Um, it was a question of can, can we prove he's not doing the job and shouldn't be given another four years? And that has nothing to do with Jeremiah Wright. There, we talked about individual donors, and I want to talk about corporate donors because some of them we can track, and we know that there was there, there were there were ways in which they could uh, be convinced that it was okay to give again, as someone described it. But there was also a lot of ways we couldn't track, a lot of ways that weren't transparent. And I wonder the degree to which some I think some groups call it shadow money affected drove decision making and drove outcomes. affected decision-making within the campaign and within the strategy that you had in mind? That Bill whether it worked for it or didn't work? Go ahead. Well, I'll just say from our perspective that, that uh, the donors who ended up uh, supporting Crossroads did so because I, th I think they, they believed in the, in the team and the structure and the approach to the task. Um, and we just didn't we didn't get donors saying you need to do this or that or talk about this issue or that issue and in part because we were very transparent about the way that we went about our decision making and you know why we believe that the strategies and the messages and the issues that we were using would be most effective but um, we just didn't encounter much of that sort of thing of saying, here's the issue that you ought to do that will change things. I think they were very receptive Was to the- Was corporate money more or less important this year? Well, for us, compared to 2010, certainly not more important. What do you mean? I mean, just in terms of an absolute percentage of, of, of our receipts, um, there wasn't any more important in, in 2012 than 2010. Okay. Anybody else? When you say corporate money, are you including union money, or are you saying? We can if you like, <laughs> and I'll ask Bill that question. Okay, because I, th I think that's an important part of the discussion, of course, is the amount of union money that's being spent, and I know the unions were some of Bill's largest donors. So how, bi how big were they for you, the unions? They're big. They're very important. You know, we had um, you know, more than a half dozen unions who gave us upwards of a million dollars uh, or more. SEIU was a... Uh, critical help in us uh, getting started and getting going and we partnered with them on what I think was one of the most important projects that uh, we undertook. It didn't get as much press coverage but I think had uh, arguably as big an impact on the race as anything else that we did which was um, you know talking to voters uh, in our Spanish language ads in Nevada, Colorado and Florida and even though that didn't get a, a, a lot of coverage you know we watched the numbers for Romney which were already bad get much, much worse. And the fact that there was no positive message coming in uh, for Romney until the end and, and small dribs and drabs uh, made it impossible for him to recover. But no, union, union support was, uh, was no doubt important to our existence. Yeah, to, me, to me, one of the interesting <clears throat> tectonic shifts on the other side was the way in which organized labor, which has always been a major outside presence. I mean, when people talk about outside money, I always say, well, there's a big player that's been active at this since, uh, since FDR. But, but it appeared to me, at least, that organized labor made a decision either of expedience or, or, or strategy to move from basically owning the ground game 
and delivering the ground game for the Democratic Party to to being the, the source of funding for uh, both Bill as well as uh, the other Democrat super PACs. And at least as far as I could tell, the, the, the uh, Obama campaign itself owning the ground game, which is, which is a change, it seems to me. In the, in the past, organized labor has delivered boots on the ground, voter turnout, <clears throat> and this time they ended up being much more the bank account. I'm, I'm, and I'm not saying anything disparaging about it, just it seemed to be a real shift in organized labor's role. It would have been good to have someone from organized labor as part of this, because I think, I think they are one of the most critical outside platforms for uh, you know, political spending on the Democratic side, and it seemed to be a shift in the way that they, they use the resources. What was it, Bill? Well, I, I can't speak to what they were doing on the ground, but I do know that um, as a percentage, and even by the you know, raw numbers, the numbers that they were able to, um, to invest in us and in other uh, Democratic groups is much smaller than it has been in the past, actually. And while they were a very important part of what we did, um, I think that you know, in places where there's just not as big a political bank account in some of these unions as there as there once was, and so the the money that came in was obviously important, and uh, we partnered on on some pretty good projects, but the numbers aren't as big as they as they were before. Well, while we're while you're talking, could you address the the president's or resistance to super PACs originally and the impact that had on your fundraising ability and so forth? Sure. Uh, well, it had a significant uh, impact. Because Democrats generally are not for outside groups and this sort of thing being in existence. And we had to spend a good year um, without the blessing of uh, the campaign or the White House or anyone associated with it, uh, raising money, trying to educate voters about what uh, mean Carl Forty was going to do to the president come fall of 2012. And, you know, so it was, it was every single meeting we went to, one of the first things that people said was, well, isn't the president against these groups? I was like, well, yes, obviously, but um, this is these are the the rules of the game. And to paraphrase Donald Rumsfeld, you go to the election with the rules that you have, not the rules that you wish you had. Um, I, I've heard that you were, on many occasions, nervous that the president would actually come out publicly and, and attack super PACs. Talk about that a little bit. Well, sure. I think that when you are at uh, when you're at a super PAC, I can't speak for these guys. You don't really want for um, your principal to be principally against what you're doing. Uh, it, it makes it makes it for for some tougher sledding than uh, you might otherwise have. And so, you know, we just the president. You know, the the irony here is that in 2008, when I was the press secretary for the campaign, I was the person who had all the statements, which their colleague Collegio dug up and, and put out the second that we announced our group. I was the person saying, "Do not set up outside groups." You know, on behalf of the then-Senator Obama, if you want to help the campaign, do it through the campaign. But since it, it, the rules had been changed, and it was a much different uh, environment than it was in 2008, and if the president was going to be, uh, remain competitive, it was going to be important to have some outside presence. Folks forget that in October of last year, the right track number was at 15. Unemployment peaked near 11%. Folks generally thought that President Obama was going to go the way of a lot of one-term presidents, and it didn't turn out that way. Um, but we thought that in order to avoid catastrophe, we needed to set up this group. And final point on this line of questioning, and that is you're a young-looking guy, never done this before. You're not an Ickes kind of figure. You're not a Karl Rove kind of figure. How much did that hurt? And what did, what was, what was, and what was. A lot of ways to go with this. And what was Ickes' advice to you and how to do this job? Well, Harold Ickes was a huge help to us because he, he was the president of the board of our super PAC and he helped to raise some money. And um, 
You know, you're right. I'm, uh, you know, not having big pillars of the party go out and try to to put this thing together uh, was a challenge. But you know, it was uh, it, after a lot of elbow grease and and some smart folks at priorities figuring out who to target and when to go talk to people and how to do it. We we're able to piece it together. So, it didn't hurt that the campaign came in uh, and supported us. Nothing like winning. So does that mean that all those people who were skeptical about it, who were slow to open their checkbooks, are now calling you on a daily basis, clapping you on the back and saying, so what do we do next time? There are a lot of folks who want to know, well, what's next? You know, there's no doubt that um, a lot of the people who invested a lot of money were happy with how it turned out and happy with the efficiency with which we spent their money and the effectiveness. Uh, and so, yes, there are people who do want to keep this effort going as long as these rules are in place. They want to make sure that on the Democratic side there's, there's an apparatus to, to deal with what we know is going to be on the Republican side. I mean, look at all these guys here, and it's just me. <laughs> Stephen and Carl, can you explain um, the Carl Rove's role? Sure. Um, uh, first of all, a, a tremendously important part of both its genesis and its uh, success. Uh, he and uh, most people know this, but he and Ed Gillespie uh, they came up with the idea uh, in about the summer of, of 20, 2009, and I, <clears throat> I started talking to them in October, and then we, we really got it rolling uh, in January of, of, of 2010. But um, I think Carl recognized, uh, well, Carl and Ed and, and a few of us recognized that it was really important to, to not simply have a, an organization exist for a particular cycle for a tactical use, but to, to actually have an enduring, to start to build enduring institutional strength in the right, the way that we saw the unions providing that for, for the Democrats, and, and at the time, at least, moveon.org, which ended up <clears throat> not, not continuing. Um, and so just, you know, first of all, that vision of something that was more than just a one-time, you know, one-trick pony, but to, to really endure and, and to build. Um, and then there were certain other parts of it that I think, uh, you know, I think Carl really gets credit for. The first is uh, encouraging us to reach out to other center-right groups and to start to try to collaborate where we were legally permitted to do so, to share information and, and encourage people to, to, to pull the oars in the same direction to the extent that we could. And that, that was very much an idea that, you know, not only did he come up with, but, but initiated the first, the first meeting was at his house on Weaver Terrace, which is why it got to be known as the Weaver Terrace Group, even though, you know, long after that moved on from there. Um, on the fundraising side, uh, both uh, he and Ed and then later on uh, Haley Barber were all tremendously instrumental in uh, harvesting their, their Rolodexes and relationships. Uh, and then lastly, um, you know, Carl is a guy who's got uh, tremendously good ideas and uh, not, again, not so much on the tactical side but, but much more in kind of broad strategic moments and, and uh, uh, was tremendously uh, useful and valuable source of ideas along the way. Did, did you share, share his sense in the closing days that Romney would win? Uh, I did not. Um, I, I did not. Um, uh, he and I joke that I'm from the, the, uh, the pessimistic uh, uh, strain of, of Norwegians, and he's from the, uh, the more optimistic ones. I think he's got a little Swedish blood in him, which is probably a slander from his perspective. But, but uh, no, I, I didn't. And, and the, reason, uh, the reason I didn't was that, 
you know, our, our polling, unfortunately, was fairly consistently accurate. And, um, and what it showed was that, uh, you know, on the plus side, we were, you know, competitive in, in, in a great number of these battleground states and even some of the fringe states, which, which grabbed attention near the end. But we just could never get over the lip uh, in Virginia, Florida, even in uh, North Carolina until the very end. And, and it, to me, it just, as I looked at the polling and as I looked at the, the directional uh, the direction of the polling, it just seemed to me that it was going to be hard at the end to, the, 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 the momentum and the energy was starting to go out or at least flatten out on our side and would make it very hard to come and up And how again. would you, or, and Carl, sort of explain his performance on Fox that Tuesday night, and does, is he now discredited among, in, in the Republican Party? Is it going to be harder for him to raise money in the future? Absolutely not, no. I mean, he's been mocked, you know, Worldwide, well, by we, that. we all get our we all get our turn in the barrel. I mean, I, I, you know, and uh, my, myself as well at different times. Not at all. Uh, I mean, we've we've actually spent a lot of time talking to our our supporters, and he has uh, in, himself. And uh, for, first of all, I think there's a tremendous amount of regard for the fact that that uh, at least his his role in this was entirely on a volunteer basis, uh, and gave a gigantic amount of his time mm -hmm. to a cause that he just. Right. You know, believed in. But I guess, and Carl, how would you explain that performance on that election night? I defer to what Stephen said. <laughs> did, did, did that give you any cause for like, what is he doing? No, it's, it's our let, reputation. Let me, re let me rephrase line. it. You yep, spent you spent you spent a year relying heavily on, as you said, the kind of strategic vision of Carl Rove, and at the end, as you admit, he was he was wrong, and you were probably right. At what point during the campaign could he have also been wrong in, in his strategic guidance? Well, that, I, I, I think, I, I think you, you, you uh, characterized something I said that, that, that I didn't say. Um, I think the strength of, of Crossroads to our, our donors and to really all of us is that, that it isn't any one person. I mean, Carl is a tremendously important factor, really the, in, in some ways the, the, uh, the indispensable man. but. Uh, he would be the first to say it, it doesn't just rest on his shoulders. I mean, uh, you know, Carl Forty is probably the most uh, experienced uh, independent expenditure uh, operative on the Republican side. Uh, Ed Gillespie for a long time was involved. Haley Barber is certainly uh, a somewhat experienced <laughs> player. And it was, it was the, the team effort that guided our decisions, including a lot of, you know, you know pretty uh, energetic uh, discussions, arguments, and disagreements about, uh, about the way forward. So I, I, I think it was a, uh, uh, but, but in addition to that, I mean, I, I think that, uh, uh, you know, folks like, you know, all, all of us really are, uh, I, I think there's a tremendous amount of value of that group discussion, and that's what, what ended up uh, yielding the results, I mean, the, the, the strategy that we had, and, and he was a significant part of that, but not the only part of it. He also helped us raise money, just in, Fairness to Carl, I'm bipartisan in his support of both sides, but you know, I I uh, I probably I emailed probably every. Yeah, but you were only raising ten dollars a pop off of him, and it really hurt his feelings. I want you to know that. <laughs> don't don't go after him, money. Uh, it's still sensitive. Um, but no, I probably emailed out every one of his columns to our donors, our high dollar list, to um, to point out what they were saying on the Republican side and how confident Rove was and. You know, when he would go on TV bursting with confidence about, um, you know, Romney winning, like that, that little clip went around every single time. Carl Rove is a, uh, 
is an enduring figure uh, for both sides. It doesn't sound, Carl, like you spent a lot of time losing sleep over that, though. Not at all. But did you wonder, and I want to get back to the, what, the other earlier question, did you worry at any point as you relied on his expertise, his overall vision, <laughs> that maybe you might be off on a wrong path, or you might be over underestimating the, pre the, the nominee's strength based on the guidance you were getting? I mean, most of the strategic decisions we were making were based on the research we were doing. We didn't, I mean, Carl Rove didn't form an opinion, then we went and implemented it. It was the research and, the, and, the, and what we learned dictated the strategy down the, from the beginning. So you, like Steve, agreed that you weren't winning at the end? Um, I was allowing myself to become cautiously optimistic, but I mean, looking back at our numbers <laughs> in hindsight too, I mean, the numbers we had a week out were pretty close to what yeah, actually happened. And look, there were a lot of people who formed that view. I mean, Michael Barone, who is, you know, widely respected as one of the deans of, of, uh, of politics by, by all sides, was also wrong. I mean, there were a lot of people. And, and, and one of the things that, that, that was a key factor for, for him and for others, and, and even for us when we allowed ourselves, as Carl said, to be cautiously optimistic, was the fact that, that Romney started picking up significant numbers of independents. In, in the battleground states, he started, he started to, to build a lead with independence, and he started to narrow the gender gap. And from our analysis of it, if, if you know, all else being equal, uh, that, that gave us a sense that it might potentially be there uh, for us to win. So there were, there were a lot of people with a lot of different views about what might end up happening. As I said, my, my, in part, I think my view is you know, slightly colored by just temperament. But, um, but there were a lot of people in all who, who, who thought that, that we were going to end up winning. There's a lot of people who were shocked on Election Day. Well, let me ask you, Charlie, if you could talk a little about the awkward dance, a legal dance, political dance of your working to raise money and help Romney but not being part of the campaign and not, not crossing the line legally or politically. And one example is, you know, the scene where, where, where Romney had that mega fundraising event in Utah and you were in the lobby trying to, you know, get donors there, but he, it was his event. How do you navigate that? And could you talk a little about that? <laughs> and were you actually grabbing the donors yeah. by their necks? <laughs> if it worked. Uh, <laughs> he was tripping them, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Grab the wallet as they fall. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that's, a, that's probably a great example. And it's an example of the tension between what legally you can do and what the perception can be in the press. And so legally, there would be no problem with my going to Romney fundraising events. Uh, you're allowed to go to any sort of public event. And as long as you're not getting strategic, you know, secret strategy information, if he's doing a donor event with uh, 100 people, 500 people, 1,000 people, nothing he says in that is presumed to be as you know, because they're all your sources, uh, and anything he says probably ends up in the New York Times, uh, that none of that's presumed to be uh, strate uh, strategic information that would constitute coordination. So legally, you would be okay doing that. Uh, practically, for example, in my personal situation, for two years I didn't go to Romney events, and it was just didn't, wanted to be able to, when somebody filed an FEC complaint, be able to do a signed affidavit saying I didn't go to Romney for, Romney for president events. Now that you gave an example of city, there was a Romney donor retreat where I think 
someplace in the hotel they were holding a retreat and there were lots of donors around and I was sitting in the lobby with one of our fundraisers and uh, saying hi to folks and setting up meetings for anybody who was interested and uh, that just seems sort of like fundraising 101 you go where the money is and it made perfect sense to be in the lobby. But I've been curious, you, you talk about the things that would leak out anyhow because he was saying this in a public event. These were mostly, a lot of these were not public events. And that's why the, the impact of the leaked 47% tape uh, was so outsized because we heard uh, Governor Romney saying things that we never heard him saying. So I'm curious after, you've all admitted that that was not helpful. The Democrats have said it was very helpful. So I'm curious whether that affected or depressed in any way fundraising from people who would normally write big bucks to go to events like that now were a little bit put off by it. Not Did for it, us. Nobody said, ah, you, you guys can't control these things. I don't want to know about it. I don't want to go. We didn't, I mean, for... I think that was a campaign event. It certainly wasn't a Restore Our Future yeah, event. Yeah. Well, he, the governor was asked. I understand, so it wasn't but our people event. don't make the distinction in their minds when they're uh, trying. Yeah. When they're being asked to write checks. Uh, you, Anybody get any, any kind of blowback from that? I think about when it came out, though. It was so far towards the end of the campaign when an event like that happened, which was clearly a bad event for Mitt Romney. I'm sure that the panic probably drove your fundraising up, if anything. Yeah, and, and, and not only that, the, the, then after that was the first debate which we're all conferring, really drove up fundraising for all of us. Mm, mm. So that tape didn't have any impact in terms of fundraising. Let me ask you, I'm looking for some consensus among the six of you. Did any of you, I have a hunch, I, I don't know the answer, but I may be wrong. Did any of you ever worry about the FEC at all during the last two years? No. Charlie? Sure, I'm a lawyer and it's my job to do so. I mean. But seriously. Of course. Uh, there's all, I mean. I think there's a right now on the commission a three vote uh, block who are committed to enforcing the laws it's written and that's not what you want them to do uh, and that's not what the reformers want them to do they you know they there's they get pressured to be expansive in their views but I feel comfortable knowing that the commission as it is right now uh, is committed to law. So you worried, but just a little bit. Yes. Worried, okay. worried about what? I At mean, all? Just but, anything? But when you when you when you set when you set up your groups to follow the rules, there's nothing really to worry about. People can misinterpret things, but I mean, who was it? Messina or something? The Democrat panel before this talked about how your bills, your your fundraising suffered until they started to help you. They're they're allowed to help do that. Um, they appeared at events, you know. So I mean. When you're doing stuff legally, I mean, there's a lot there's of nothing... money going around. They're trying tens of millions, but, of hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, um, and their role supposedly is as the watchdog of what you're doing. I don't want to wind up in an orange jumpsuit, so I mean, we're not going to do anything wrong. Well, and and just to flesh that out just a little yeah. bit more in terms of, and maybe I was taking your question a little bit differently, in that the core function of the FEC is to enforce the clearly written laws. And the commission agrees on about 95 or 96 percent of cases. So it is unified in enforcing the law that the laws that are clear. Now you can, you know, we get requests for information from the FEC about a description on an expenditure or that sort of thing. And those are the sort of things where it's clearly written and they're good at enforcing. And if you're taking in enough money and have enough donors, you're going to get questions from them. You know, I want to also talk about this whole 
search for some agreement on this other kind of overview question, which is, I think, Charlie, you were the one at the beginning of this conversation who talked about how everybody thought Citizens United and big money would corrupt the system, and that in the end it didn't. And there was no scandal anyway, is what the way you put it. So I, I, wonder, I wonder whether now that we look back on this year, which turned the corner on the way that independent expenditures had an effect on this election, we, I think we can agree. To what degree do we define corruption down? Uh, not corruption so much, but not scandal. But to what degree have we now entered a brave new world where we have a different understanding about whether big money is good or bad? Is it okay? I still get questions everywhere I go, like the question I got yesterday in Dallas about money. People are still nervous about the idea of the impact of big money, and they don't necessarily pay that much attention to the idea about who did it, who raised it, just that there's a lot of money in the system and it can't be good. Do you, in the end, feel that we're on a good path with all this extra money? I think, I think it is a good path, and I think that in some, I think in some ways super PACs are more of a model of, of transparency than campaigns are. Um, when we're heading into, you know, we're filing monthly reports, when we're expending money, we're filing, you know, 48-hour reports, and, and we're constantly telling, telling uh, the public and the FEC where we're spending money, how we're spending the money, who the vendor is, what the amount is, what the state is that it's being spent in, and, and every donor is also reported. And so, and there's not, there's not any big lag that you have to wait. And, and so as the contests are happening and as you are spending the money, you're disclosing it. Um, and, and I think that, you know, I, I'm a person that, you know, believes that you shouldn't limit speech and that, uh, and that if an individual wants to volunteer a thousand hours on a campaign or for a cause, or a person wants to write a million dollar check, they can express themselves in whatever way they want. And with the, with the case of super PACs, it's all disclosed. Every, every bit of the income and every, and, and every expenditure, and I think that's healthy. Bill, healthy? No, ultimately I don't think it's uh, a, a good system and could use some reform, because the spending isn't just from super PACs, it's also from groups that uh, don't disclose everything. That's only one piece of it, though. You know, the, the question of whether or not there was a problem coming out of the election, you wouldn't get necessarily by election day, right? So for... I'm sure that you can come up with, with examples on the Democratic side, but on the Republican side. So say Mitt Romney had been elected president. Um, whatever happened with the, uh, the investigation that the Justice Department has into Shell Nadelson's dealings would have gotten extra scrutiny. And no matter which way it went, people would have questioned whether or not the extraordinary amount of money that he had given had played a role in the outcome of what happened there. Now, that's obviously not to say that there would have been corruption, because I wouldn't imply that at all, because people who make those sorts of decisions are, are professionals at the Justice Department. Um, but that's the, those are the kinds of questions that get raised just because there is all this money in the system, and why ultimately you know, there probably ought to be um, caps, though there definitely ought to be caps on how much money people should give, and uh, transparency is probably the, the best way to go about um, uh, running these organizations so that people can have a clear sense. and. If questions arise, people can ask them. Um, but that's in an ideal world. That's in an ideal world. But in the world we live in now, that's not the case. And there are no caps. And there are organizations, like one of which I run with my partner, Sean Sweeney, um, that don't disclose every single dollar that comes in, every single dollar that goes out the door. And um, you know, it's a system that, that needs reform. And you know, I hope that this next, this next session, that some of those Republican members who saw some outside money spent against them start to come to the conclusion that, yeah, maybe this is not a perfect system for, uh, for how, how we do this thing. Let's quickly go down the, the line. 
Yeah. <clears throat> I'll just say two quick things. First, first of all, uh, I think one of the most important points was made uh, earlier by Charlie, which is that the law that we're operating under is not really Citizens United, it's McCain-Feingold. I often like to say that we're all the children of, of Fred Wertheimer. Uh, th this was entirely predicted at the time of its passage, that it would, it would push money out, in, out of the parties and into other channels. And uh, the, the major innovation post-Citizens United is that the people on the right started to do what was done very effectively uh, on the left. I mean, prior to Citizens United, organized labor spent $400 million in the 2008 elections, after which point Gerald McEntee said publicly, we want payback for our investment. In this election cycle, the firefighters publicly said they were unsure whether they were going to support uh, President Obama again unless they got some things they wanted. And then at some point later, they evidently got some things they wanted because they said they decided they were going to support him. I mean, th those are the things that strike me as a little, uh, a little more troubling. But nevertheless, I think it's it, it, the, the system that we operate under is a system that Congress uh, passed, and I think it, it shows the, the, the folly of trying to push uh, you know, resources out of the parties where I think they can be a very effective and leveling voice uh, supporting both challengers and their own <laughs> candidates. I guess I would just say that, you know, we are the practitioners. Um, and I guess to Stephen's point, you know, if the, if the lawmakers decide there's a problem and want to tr try to change the law the way they do with McCain-Feingold, they can do that. Um, but, you know, the, the Supreme Court was pretty clear, too, that people have a First Amendment right to spend their money um, in politics if they want to. Uh, and if, you know, I don't know that Sheldon Adelson spending $20 million is any different than somebody that makes $50,000 a year writing a $1,000 check to a candidate um, from, from a quality of dollar standpoint. So, you know, the, the system is the system. And I think a lot of people would rather have you, Rick, write a column on the front page of the New York Times about whatever the issue is, then have money in a super PAC. That has a lot more value. You have a voice in the marketplace, too, and I think that's part of why there's screaming about super PACs is it's a balancing influence that puts some money into the more conservative voices or voices that may not be heard in the mainstream media. So, and one other thing is I, it's also can be anti-establishment. So. I think super PACs are around. I think they're going to be a growing phenomenon in the next two election cycles. I think you'll see a lot more of them in primary elections where you where a smaller amount of money can have a large impact. And I also think you'll see them focused on single issues. Uh, Brian's group, Ending Spending, is very effective on pushing a very narrow issue. And I think you'll see more of that in the coming years about groups focused on certain ideological issues. I have noticed that Rupert Murdoch has had a tough time getting his message out there. <laughs> I, I would say there's two points. I mean, I think first, a lot of people forget that Citizens United um, helps in terms of corporations and it helps in terms of allowing us to set up super PACs. But before Citizens United, people, wealthy or not, had the option to exercise their First Amendment rights in campaigns. So even with without, without Citizens United, even without super PACs, I have no doubt if President Obama, uh, you know, did his presidency the way he has so far in terms of his fiscal policy, irresponsible fiscal policy in Mr. Ricketts' eyes, he would have still spent the $10 million or more that he spent. And the disclaimer, as opposed to saying paid for by the super PAC, would have said paid for by Joe Ricketts. And I believe there was a gentleman this year who did that, the uh, Hungarian businessman. So. The, the law, effect. right, so, I mean, the, the law that we really should be talking about here is the First Amendment, as Carl said. So I think that's the first point. And I think the second point is I always 
come back to, to George Will, uh, who, you know, I think every year when he writes his campaign finance column, he notes that we spend more money annually advertising for chewing gum than we do with picking our national leaders. So I'm not so certain why, Bill, you're afraid to allow folks to exercise their First Amendment rights. Um, you know, certainly our national leadership is at least as important as what gum we chew. Before we go, um, what are you telling all these people that spent millions and millions and millions of dollars um, and the money all went down the drain, they, their candidate did not win in November? What are you telling them? How are you placating them? I, well, two things. I'll talk uh, at least from the Restore Our Future perspective. First of all, I don't agree with your characterization that the money went down the drain. Uh, well, if the outcome is to elect the, their candidate for president and they lose, to me that's money down the drain. Well, first of all, it's to be in a position, and that means winning a primary, that you can compete and win. And second of all, it means being able to fight back against attacks, keep, a, keep the candidate, help their efforts to stay in the game over the summer when traditionally the underfunded candidate gets knocked out, and be in a position to win in the closing weeks, which I think uh, Governor Romney certainly was. And so to come up with one metric of obviously that's the key, but it could have been a lot worse, I believe, without the efforts of all the groups at these table at the table, other than Bill, who wasn't helpful. Uh, when you the, say but, a lot worse, how so? How could it be worse than losing? Could have lost a lot worse and yeah. might have had a mandate. You never know. I mean, they could that I don't think I don't think that's fair to say that money went down the drain okay. but to answer your question also we made a specific effort to key, to communicate with our donors and every no no less frequently than every two weeks probably more frequently than that we did calls with them where we would walk through polling numbers and we would walk through what our strategy was and tell them exactly where we saw the race going in the coming weeks, what we were doing and how their money was being used, and also talk about the expenses and how efficient we were in the use of their resources. And because they, I think, felt vested in our strategy and what we were doing, uh, I did not, we did a call after the election with donors, and we did not have one donor complain about our efforts on the call. And I'm not aware of a single donor complaining about our efforts. And, and, and if I could just add to Final that, Charlie, ju just real quickly, the, the other important thing is, I think, from the donors that we've talked to, and certainly on our end, is if our efforts have pushed issues to the forefront, like the fiscal cliff. And so if we, uh, through our efforts, Governor Romney unfortunately was not elected, but if it forces President Obama to be a more responsible president for the next four years, then hopefully some good will have come out of our efforts. Thank you all so much. Thank you.